you have your Bibles and you would like to turn to First uh, Samuel, we'll be covering a couple chapters. We're going to do it a little differently than, than last week, but we're going to be still covering a, a large amount of ground. If you look up and you see the title of today's sermons, A Rejected King. If you remember last week, we talked about Saul becoming king. Um, so it seems like, so what's happening here? Are we skipping a lot of time? What's happening? Um, really, the only thing that's happened between last week's sermon that ended in chapter 11 is Samuel gives his farewell address. And, and by the end of this, you're probably going to feel kind of, at least I do, a little bad for Samuel. Um, it seems like he's been trying to retire for quite some time. And every time he does, or wants to, uh, something happens, and he has to get back into the middle of things. So he gives his farewell address. Why is he needed anymore? They have a king, a king who's going to follow them and, and lead them into prosperity. And then as soon as he gives this farewell address, the very next chapter, uh, Saul begins his journey into uh, being rejected by God. So Samuel gives his farewell speech, says he'll continue to pray for the people. Um, Saul prepares for battle. He battles the Philistines and prepares to get into battle with them. And this is where we see. So we're going to be talking about two different events that really kind of seal Saul's rejection as king. The first one is Saul's un unlawful sacrifice. In preparation to go to battle with the Philistines, he's waiting for Samuel to come and offer sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel is late. Doesn't get there in the time that he said he's going to. Saul takes it upon himself to offer the sacrifice. And, and we're going to get into why that is such a problem that he did that. And then, skipping a chapter where there's some other things that Saul does. He makes a, a rash vow and almost puts his son to death because of it. But thank the people intercede on Jonathan's behalf, so he's not put to death. Chapter 15, we see where uh, the Amalekites are, are commanded to be um, destroyed by, by Saul and the people of Israel. And if we want to understand why this is happening, it's one of those things in Scripture like, why would God command that? Why would God command Saul and the people of God to completely destroy the Amalekites? Why would he command that? doesn't make sense. We're going to start with some, some context for this. Who were the Amalekites? Why were they devoted to destruction? Why were they told to be devoted to destruction? Because the problem was Saul didn't follow through. And it's at that point that he is utterly rejected as king. And we will see next week who the next king will be. So we're going to read starting in Exodus chapter 17, where we see why the Amalekites are going to be destroyed. 17, Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held his hand up uh, held his hand up his held up his hand Israel we'll get there okay Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand Amalek prevailed but Moses' hand grew hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and while Aaron and Hur held his hands up one on each side and the other on the other side so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the, in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, 
saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, this is why they are going to battle the Amalekites. Do you know how much time has passed? 200 years. Approximately 200 years from this battle with Amalek and God devoting his, his descendants to destruction. I, I would venture to say, if we, if we see anything from the Lord, right? why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because God is merciful and they might repent. I would say 200 years is, is quite long enough, quite merciful to have had time to repent. But now the Lord is following through and judging the Amalekites for their sin, as he has the right to do. So now we are going to get to the main question of this sermon. Why was Saul rejected? What did he do that led to him being rejected in these two examples where he's preparing to go battle the Philistines and he's already battled with the Amalekites? There's these two. We're going to be going from chapter 13 to chapter 15. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we continue to do that. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to focus on your word, to be prepared, to be ready to go into your word today, to see what you're saying to us. God, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts and help us to focus only on what you're calling us to do. Thank you for your word that you've given us. Thank you for this time that we have to, to gather together. And help us to look and to see how we can look at Saul's example and see how we should avoid falling into the same temptations that he fell into, the same snares that he fell into, as they're so common and so easy to fall into. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see as we go into these passages is that Saul misunderstood himself. Saul misunderstood himself. As he approached these situations, as he approached his relationship with God, as he approached his role as king, he misunderstood himself and what he was supposed to do. The first thing we see is that Saul had a self-esteem issue. Saul had a self-esteem issue because he was relying upon his self-esteem and not how God had esteemed him. We're going to get into that. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is after he has battled with the Amalekites, and Samuel comes to him. This is what he says, verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. This is one of the, the main problems. This is kind of a foundational issue that Saul has in his time as king and in what leads to him being so disobedient and rejected by the Lord. He has low self-esteem. We see this even when he is being called by God in 1 Samuel 9, 21. This is the first interaction he has with Samuel. And Samuel is saying some favorable things about him. And here's what he says. Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? Samuel or Saul views himself in a very low way. Saul seems to be convinced that he is a nobody, or at least is worried that he is a nobody, that he's not good enough for what God has called him to. 
that he isn't great, that he isn't anything special. Even though by outward appearances, as we talked last week, he certainly was more of a somebody than most people. He was from a wealthy family. He was a head taller than all of the people of Israel. And it says that he was the most handsome man in Israel. If we look at the things the world says you should value, he had money, he had looks, and he, had, and he was tall. He, wasn't, he, was, he, was, he seemed to be fairly smart as well. He had what a lot of people would want. But still, he had a low regard for himself. The problem here isn't that he, had, he needed to have a higher regard for himself. The problem is that he needed to be concerned with what God said about him and not what he thought of himself or what others thought of him. It is not about who you think you are, but it is about who God says you are. We must understand who we are. We have to have a, a correct view of ourselves. We can't be delusional about who we are, but we must understand what God says we are. Because there is danger when it comes to self-esteem. We live in, in a world and a culture that wants you to think highly of yourself. And in general, usually having a, a higher view of yourself is going to be better than having a low view of yourself. You, you might be happy. You might be, have, have a better life from day to day. But there's dangers when it comes to relying on self-esteem. If you have too high of a self-esteem, you think more highly than you should, it leads to an idea and an approach to God. Why would God send me to hell? I'm a good person. I think you're thinking a little too highly of yourself if that's how you're approaching God. Your self-esteem is too high. Or if it's too low, how could God love me? How could God use me? I'm worthless. I'm unusable. Our self-esteem is so easy to fluctuate. It's so dependent on our circumstances and the things around us and what, what happens, what we do. And in reality, to function normally, we often have to lie to ourselves. We have to find ways to, to tell ourselves that we're better than we are if we want to rely on our self-esteem. Because if we really understand who we are, especially in light of who God is, we will have some problems. We're going to realize how we fall short. It's dependent on others' opinions on us. We constantly seek validation with our self-esteem. We should seek instead to have God-esteem. Who does God say that we are? Because the reality is those things that, that often come our way, if we want to compare ourselves to the world, we want to compare ourselves to others, we're going to realize that sometimes things are true. You're not, you're not going to be the best. You're not going to be the smartest. You're not going to be the, the most of anything. There's always going to be someone out there that, that might be better than you at something. And if we are relying on ourselves for our own motivation to do things, we're going to find things that will tear us down. Those things are not what we are looking to in how we live our life. Those things are not what we're looking to as we live our lives as a Christian, as a, as a parent, as a, as a spouse, as a, as a worker. What do we look to? What God says we are. So who does God say that we are? The first thing we see is that we are a sinner. We know this, that the truth of who we are is that we are sinful. We are not good enough. That God knows us intimately. He knows our very thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He's known us since while we were being formed in the womb. God knows us, knows everything about us. There's nothing secret from Him. 
And still, we are loved. God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us, to, to ransom us, to buy us back, to reconcile us with Him. Even though we are sinful, even though He knows the depths of our sinfulness and how much that if other people knew, maybe they wouldn't love us. But God loves us. Purchased us with the blood of Christ so that we can be called a child of God. Called according to His purposes to do His will in this world. And that we are perfectly saved. There is nothing that any person, neither sword nor famine nor, the, nor angels nor demons, can, can remove the salvation that God has, been given, has given to us. Nothing can threaten God's love for us. So here's where I want us to understand that, that this is so much better than self-esteem. You can go to a group of friends and they can tell you all the reasons you should like yourself. And maybe there are many reasons, but what do you say to the person that's done everything wrong? They've made every wrong choice in their life. You don't have anything good to say to them. The beautiful thing is for the best person you can think of and the worst person you can think of, this story is true for them. They, they are a sinner, they are fully known, and they are fully loved by a God who gave His only Son to die for them. And so when we live through our life, when we go through our life as a Christian, it doesn't matter how highly we think of ourselves, of how intelligent we think we are, how much of the Bible we have read that week, or how much we know of Scripture compared to the next person, or how many good things we've done, how often we've shared our faith. Those things don't matter. It matters who God says that we are. And we should live as though we believe who, what He says about us. So Saul, his issue, his first issue, was he had low self-esteem. He was concerned what he thought of himself and what others thought about him. And that's the second thing we see is that he was more concerned about people's opinion of him rather than God's commands. We're going to read a few scriptures here. So before he goes to battle the Philistines, this is where he makes the unlawful sacrifice. He waited seven days. That's, that is quite a while. The time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. What leads him to make this sacrifice? People are leaving him. The people are leaving him. He's scared. He's concerned. He's being abandoned. The next scripture we're looking at is after he has fought the Amalekites in, in 1 Samuel 15, 20 through 21. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But then he does admit, after Samuel confronts him in, in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for, the transgress for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul's insecurity about who he was led to him being a poor leader. Instead of leading people to do what he knew was right, because God told him, he bent to their will. And this is how we see this happen. His low self-esteem was informed by people's opinion of him. And so when they say, what are you doing? We're going to lose if we don't approach God in this way. If we don't do these things, why would we destroy all of these good things? What does, what does Saul do? 
He wants to be liked. He wants to have the favor of the people. And so he bends to their will. But what did he need to remember? Though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. This is why he said this. This was to remind Saul that God placed him into this position of power. Even though he didn't think highly of himself, even though he didn't have reason to be a a, a proud leader, he had been given this authority by God. And so what is he called to do? To exercise this authority as one who has been placed there by God. Not to listen to the people, not to bend to the people's will, but to be God's leader among these people. And so when he knows God's commandments, he knows what God's leading him to do, and he hears the people say something otherwise, what should he do? Be a leader. Be a king. Serve God and not the people. Because in serving God, he really does serve the people. More than that, it should change his interaction with those around him. If he views himself and understands that God has called him and placed him in this position, he won't be looking for validation from those around him. He won't be looking to please them. Samuel is reminding Saul that his validation comes from the Lord and he is accountable to him. While godly counsel in our lives is helpful, we should not let people distract us from what God calls us to do. Godly counsel is helpful, but there will be times where even people that you may trust and you may like will lead you to do things you, don't, you know that you should not do. When God has called you to do something, you cannot bend to the will of the people. Much of what we are called to do as Christians, much of the way we are called to live in this world will cause friction with the people we meet. The gospel is offensive. Sharing the truth of what God says is going to upset people. Every day it seems to be more and more offensive. But we must stand firm on God's truth and not conform to what the world may say. We must call sin what it is and we must live differently. We must share the gospel showing people their sin and calling them to repentance. You see, what Saul did was when he faced this friction, when he faced this difficulty, because it doesn't always make sense. Following God doesn't always make sense. It's not going to lead you to be the most popular person in in a room. When when Saul is leading the people, they begin to leave because God doesn't seem to be on their side at that moment. When they have fought the Amalekites, they, they question, why would we destroy these good things? Why would God tell you to do that? It doesn't matter why God tells us to do things. It matters that we are obedient. Jesus knew that we would face these difficulties. John 15, 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We should expect that if we are following God faithfully, there will be pushback when we do so, or even persecution. 
When this happens, we cannot bow to persecution, but instead must stand firm in what we know God has called us to do. We must value God's calling over people's opinions. We must value what God has called us to do over what people tell us we should do instead. We think about what, the, what the Peter and John did in Acts 4, 19-20. When they stand before the Sanhedrin, they, 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 they tell them, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak, of, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This should have been Saul's response. When the people come in and they say, well, why can't we take the best things? When the people begin to leave and to desert him, to question him, whether it's right to listen to them or to listen to God, they can judge. But he, might, he should have known, and he should know that he must follow God instead of what people call him to. And so when we go through our life, and we have those friends or those family members that we know that if we share the gospel with them, it might affect our relationship. They might begin to look at us a, bit, a little bit differently. They might begin to, to question, why are they that way? Do they really believe those things? Who are we here for? Who is our life for? Is our life to please people, to have a good reputation for them, with them? Or is it to please God and to be obedient to Him with our life? So he misunderstood what his role was. He misunderstood what God was calling him to do. But more than that, he also misunderstood God. Saul misunderstood God. Because it's not about a ritual. It's about right relationship with God. Following God, being a Christian, having a relationship with Him is not about ritual, but having a right relationship with God. And so... When, when Saul is explaining to Samuel why he has made this sacrifice, instead of waiting for Samuel, in, in chapter 13 he says this, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I, will have not, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Then in 1 Samuel 15, 15, after, while he's explaining why they did not devote the Amalekites to destru destruction, Saul says this, Saul said, they, they have brought from them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now, I think Samuel's a little bit of a comedian when he comes into that verse. Because right before that, he comes to Saul. And Saul says, hey, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. I fought the Amalekites. And Samuel says, what is, what is this uh, bleeding of sheep and oxen that I hear? He said, oh yeah, we brought those, the best ones, so we could sacrifice them. That's what's happening here. Saul's understanding of sacrifice is way off. He treats it as a transactional thing. And so in chapter 13, when he's preparing to battle the Philistines, he says, I want success, so I will sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel's not here yet, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. This reminds me of how the elders brought the Ark of the Covenant out before battle with, with uh, Eli's two sons, right? They had suffered defeat, and so they said, well, I guess if we bring the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, maybe the Lord will fight on our behalf. They're viewing God as a weapon. It's a, if I will pay this homage, you will fight on my behalf. Saul is treating the Lord in a similar way. And notice that Saul admits that he had not sought the favor of the Lord. 
He said, the Philistines are coming and, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. Saul had not approached the Lord in regards to this upcoming battle, not even going to him in prayer. He could have and should have sought him in prayer. He could have and should have asked him, Lord, should I prepare this sacrifice? Your servant Samuel hasn't come. What should I do? I want to fight on your behalf. I want to be your king. We want to, to live in your purpose. Wouldn't the Lord have answered him? When Hannah, at the beginning of this book, wanted a child, did she force herself and offer a sacrifice? No, she prayed to the Lord. Something that Saul had not done. And rather than go to the Lord, he looked to force the Lord to go to him through sacrifice. If I offer this sacrifice, the Lord will be on my, on my side. And then later, after fighting the Amalekites, Saul thought that the Lord desired sacrifice over obedience. It's the same sin we see in the garden. Did God really say to devote these good things to destruction? Wouldn't He want us to take the best things to sacrifice to Him? What did the Lord say? God desires a right relationship with Him. And a right relationship with Him will, will produce a right heart with pure motives. God desires a right relationship with Him and a right heart with pure motives over sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22 said this, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. If you think about any moment with, with your children, it's so easy to see this relationship play out. Right? How we interact with God often, I think, is so easily seen in our relationship with our children. And I think back to when I was in high school and, and I had my first car accident. Right? If you've ever had a car accident, what's your initial, especially as a teenager, what's your initial response? Oh, my parents are going to be so mad at me. They're going to be so mad at me. I've just wrecked this car. It's going to cost a lot of money. We just had liability insurance. That means there's not going to be anything to replace it. Insurance is going to go up. Just recently went back down a couple years ago because of that. But what's the first thing my parents said to me? I guarantee you, you can think of it. I'm just glad you're okay. You see, obviously, they don't want me to go and destroy the car. The car has value, but it's more of my treatment of the car. What do, what do they do? They don't care more about the car than they do me. What do they say? I'm just glad you're okay. And so the Lord does delight, or did delight in the sacrifices that His people brought in right heart and in right relationship to Him. But more than that, what does He desire? I don't care about that. I want your heart to be right. I don't care about those things. I care about you. And if you are bringing me those things out of a, right, out of a wrong motive, out of a wrong relationship with me, I don't want them. I want obedience. I don't desire your sacrifices over obedience. I desire you, a relationship with you. This is something that David, right, one of the things that he says as he rejects Saul is that the one who replaced him will be a man after his, God, his own heart, after God's own heart. And that's David. And David understands this after his sin with Bathsheba in, in Psalm 51 when he's repenting to the Lord. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not 
despise. This is the understanding we need to have, that when we do things wrong, when we aren't obedient, when we don't follow God, He doesn't want us to follow through some steps, some order of things to make things right. That's what David is saying. I've messed up, and bringing sacrifices to you is not what's going to fix it. A broken and contrite heart before you. Repentance before you is what you desire. God does not desire that we do things the right way. He desires right relationship. Right relationship then leads to doing things the right way. But we can't get those things out of order. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. <coughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The problem is when people attempt to take the works and make that the, the method through which they get right with God. They say, well, I realize there's this gap between God and myself, and the way I'm going to fix it <coughs> is by trying harder, by doing more. No. God desires a right relationship with you that is available by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. And that relationship will, will give you a new heart. And with that new heart and that right relationship, you will then do good works because that is what a right relationship will result in. In Psalm 51, the same psalm we were looking at, David expresses this very same thing. He says it's not about sacrifice or I would bring it. <clears throat> but after he goes through, and he talks about being redeemed. He says, and then sacrifices will be given to you. Why? Celebration of what God has done. Not to demand that God will forgive him. He doesn't desire, we do, he doesn't desire that we do things the right way. He desires right relationship. And right relationship leads to doing things the right way. And the problem is that we see this attitude still very thoroughly in our culture, and, and it even comes into the church at times. People equate doing good things with earning God's favor. This idea, right? Why would God send me to hell? I'm a good person. I do the right things. People equate church attendance with seeking the favor of the Lord. They equate giving monetarily to the church to seeking favor with God. There's a song that um, is, is very popular. I'm sure most of you have heard it. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? But nobody wants to go now. Have you heard this song? It's a country song. I think originally it was George Strait. And then Kenny Chesney did a remix of it. But here's what it says. I said, preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. That's one for everything I did last night and one to get me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember next time you get the, got the good Lord's ear. Say, I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Don't you know that everybody wants to go to heaven, get their wings and fly around? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. This is a terrible misunderstanding of what it means to have a relationship with God. Right? This idea that, oh, well, you know, last night was kind of crazy. I'm going to put an extra 20 in the plate tomorrow. And yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go today. I'd rather, I'm having a lot of fun down here. And maybe if I give the, the, the pastor an extra 10, that he'll, uh, he'll uh, you know, pray for me a little more. 
that is not what a relationship with God is about. God is not a genie that we can entice or we can earn favor with through our actions, but one that we should have, a person that we need to, to seek a relationship with. God desires a relationship with us, and this relationship tra- tra- changes and transforms us. It leads us to obedience. It leads us to good works out of celebration and not obligation. We celebrate what God has done. And the final thing that we see that, that where Saul did not know God, where he misunderstood God, is that he thought that he knew better than the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, 18-21, And the Lord sent you on a mission... Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on this mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul was given very clear instructions. They were not to take spoils. They were not to, to take anything from this. This was a holy war. This is what God has told them to do. He followed them, but in his own interpretation. I will devote them to destruction except for the very best things. And if the people want these things, I'm not going to stop them, even though he's the king. Right? You, you understand this idea that if you are in a high position in a company and someone underneath, underneath you messes up in a, in a terrible way, especially if you knew about it, who's responsible? You are. Right? If you're the overseer of a project and the people underneath of you do a terrible thing and they destroy it, who's going to probably get fired? Them, but probably also you. And so this is the equivalent of what Saul is doing here. Hey, yeah, I, I did what you said, but these people, they just didn't get it. Saul, you're the king. Where have you heard that same line of reasoning before? Did you eat of the apple you weren't supposed to? You, God, I wanted to, but this woman you gave me. Saul was the king to lead the people. And he's making excuses for why he didn't do what God called him to do. Why he didn't follow through. Why he thought it was better. And one of the things I think that, that is very telling of, of Saul's heart right here is when he says that they took these things for sacrifice, he says, for sacrifice to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, to Samuel. It's the same sin as in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say to devote everything to destruction? It sure would be a shame to see all these good things go to waste. We can sacrifice them. God will like that. God desires obedience over sacrifice. Here's what Samuel says to Saul, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So disobedience is like witchcraft. And assuming the Lord's role is idolatry. When God calls us to do something, He expects obedience. This is where it's so easy for us to be like Saul. 
Right? It's easy to look at things like, oh, divination, witchcraft, these things. I can avoid that. I cannot do those things. I can I cannot worship false gods. I can do those things. But the disobedience, the presumption that we know better than God, that we can disobey, we can alter his commands, we can follow at our leisure. In God's eyes is the same. It's rejection of who he is. When God calls us to do something, he expects obedience. So about a month or two ago, um, we let Eliza go. She's kind of at a point where she won't always take naps. And, and so we let her have some quiet time, is what we call it, downstairs with the dog. And sometimes she's a little too quiet. In this particular day, she found some scissors. And so the dog got a very cool haircut. Um, and so what we told her was, listen, you cannot play with scissors. Even if you find them, because she, she was not given scissors, even if you find them, you cannot use scissors unless mommy and dad or daddy or, or an adult is helping you. Okay, I understand. The next day, during quiet time, we find her using scissors. Now, she wasn't cutting the dog's hair. I think she was cutting some paper. We said, Eliza, what are you doing? Well, I wasn't cutting the dog's hair. Don't we do the same thing? Don't do this. Well, I'm not doing it that way, God. I'm doing it differently. I'm doing it in a way where we, we, we so constantly seek to look for loopholes in God's commands. To find a reason why what we're doing isn't wrong. Maybe what they're doing is wrong, but what we're doing isn't wrong. We look to find the boundary of what God has said is okay. Well, how far can I push this before it's a sin? God tells me to share the gospel, but like, does that mean every time? He tells me to be obedient, but does that mean all the commands? What if I just do this thing? God wants us to be obedient, and we must simply obey. And so if we don't want to be like Saul, if we don't want to offend God in the same ways that he did, we need to consider how God views us rather than how we view ourselves or, or how others view us. We should regard what he says over what others say. Take what he says as what we should do rather than what others are telling us that we should do. And we must remember that he wants us in right relationship with him, not simply going through motions, showing up to church, doing what we think we have to do. He wants right relationship. And from that right relationship, we will do the right things. We must remember that he calls us to be obedient, not to pick and choose how we obey or when we obey, but to follow him faithfully. And so this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, I want to invite you to look at your life. Where are the ways where you might tend to be like Saul? To rely on how you view yourself. To, to be concerned with, uh, with other people, what other people say to you, how they call you to live, what they tell you you should do, instead of what God says. When do you approach your relationship with God as a transactional thing, as though you will do good things and God will give things to you, rather than a relationship? And when do you look to find loopholes in obedience, to find ways to, to question, did God really want me to do this that way? I think I'm doing good enough. I think I've fulfilled what He's asked me to do. When do you seek to find ways 
to make it lesser than what God calls you to be. And this morning, do you know Him? Do you have that relationship with Him? Because if you don't, if you have not been saved by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you don't have a relationship with God. If you're depending on your own ability, on your own things that you do, those things will not save you. The only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus Christ, that He he willingly went to the cross for your sins and was raised again. Have you trusted Him for salvation this morning? And if not, today is the day for salvation. As we approach this time, respond to how God is working in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us and this time that we can look at Your Word and we can see the example of what not to do in the life of Saul. Though he was given this great position, called to this great place of of leadership in, in Your kingdom, Lord, he allowed his own insecurities and concerns of people and and misunderstanding of who you are lead him off track. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help to guide us, and that we would be sensitive to where you direct us, where you lead us in, in life. God, I pray that we would be obedient to you as we seek to follow you. Lord, I pray that we would respond to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Thank you.